So Faye, it's getting really close to July. And so that means that there's going to be a lot of new folks coming into the hospital and they're all going to be asking not only, oh my God, you're the Cree over coffee people, but also what can you read or what can you do? Yeah, definitely. One of the biggest things that I use to help me study both for um, my oral boards that are coming up, but also just in my general everyday life is actually the OBG project. Yeah, in particular for residents, they have an exclusive resource right now called the Resident Core, um, which is a comprehensive resource for education, kind of like an open source curriculum. Um, it's free to all residents. You just head on over to our website at creagsovercoffee.com or to the OBG Project website, and you can learn more and get signed up. Absolutely. And if you are a fourth year resident, if you're a rising chief, you can actually get OBG first absolutely free, which is their premium subscription process um, that allows you to create your own libraries and bookmark some of your favorite articles from the website. So again, if you're interested, head on over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com. You can check out the sidebar and find out how to get either that free year of OBG first as a chief resident or to get signed up for the resident core for every other resident out there. guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we're going to be doing another espresso episode. We are going to be talking about managing acute uterine bleeding in the non-pregnant person. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll first review the causes of uterine bleeding in non-pregnant folks, and then we'll discuss the appropriate and simultaneous workup and stabilization of those with acute uterine bleeding, because workup and stabilization kind of go hand in hand. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about the appropriate treatment or treatments based on the suspected cause of acute bleeding. Faye, I know that we've talked about this before, but what causes bleeding in the non-pregnant person? Yeah, so to talk about this, we should go all the way back to episode 47 when we talked about AUB. So remember palm coin. And just as a quick refresher, remember palm are those structural causes of bleeding and coin are the non-structural causes. So very quickly, palm is P-A-L-M. And so P is for polyp, A is for adenomyosis, L for lyomyoma or fibroids, and M for malignancy. And COIN is, you know, very liberally spelled with an E in the middle, but it stands for C for coagulopathy, O for ovulation or potentially anovulation, E for endometrial, meaning local endometrial factors, I for iatrogenic, and N for not otherwise specified. Nick, let's go through the process of, you know, how you get consulted. So let's say one of your emergency medicine colleagues calls you and they say, please come right now. There's really, really bad vaginal bleeding for this patient. So what should you do? You know, that's, I feel like probably a consult call of OBGYN residents everywhere, right? It's like, ah, what do I do now? Please come. There's a lot of bleeding happening. But just like any other bleeding issue, whether it's related to pregnancy or non-pregnancy or related to trauma or anything else, your emergency medicine colleagues should have those ABCs in mind, right? Airway, breathing, circulation. So we're 
primarily dealing with the C part of that circulation right now, um, you want to check vital signs. Assess for whether you know, this is obviously down a hemorrhagic shock pathway or if it's just heavy bleeding that needs to be further assessed but stable. If you're worried that someone is going to need large volume resuscitation, get two large bore IVs in. And then start the resuscitation right away. Balanced crystalloid is a great place to start to at least get somebody's vessels back filled up. And obviously if someone is appearing unstable, just like you would in sort of the undifferentiated trauma patient, you're going to give them blood. I want to skip, I know typically when we do this, we think about like sort of initial steps, history and exam laboratories, but let's kind of think emergency medicine style for a minute here and say, okay, before we even get in the door, what are the laboratories that we want? Yeah, because this is what's going to happen with your triage, right? They're just going to right away go ahead and get those labs that you want. So First things first, you know, if this is a patient who is in that range of being able to be pregnant, you want to get that pregnancy test. We mm -hmm. always want that as OBGYNs, and we'll talk about that a little bit. We want a CBC, coags, and a type and screen and cross-match because when you want to transfuse, you obviously want to try and give them cross-match blood. So remember that pregnancy can cause a whole bunch of other issues when there's heavy bleeding. And that leads to a lot of other differential diagnosis and management from miscarriage to retained placenta. So we'll set that aside for today because of course we're talking about non-pregnancy bleeding. You want that CBC as well. You want to know where you're starting from. So if there's an acute bleeding episode, that H&H may not accurately reflect the actual red blood cell status because there hasn't been time to equilibrate. But the CBC might also clue you into rare disorders. So for example, is there thrombocytopenia and could that be due to something like TTPHUS, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura with hemolytic uremic syndrome or leukemia that can all result in vaginal bleeding. The coag panel is so if you suspect a coagulopathy. So in the adolescent patients, this may be a sign of underlying bleeding disorder like a von Willebrand's disease or hemophilia that hasn't previously been caught. And in an older patient without any history of bleeding, abnormal coags may point to evolving DIC from very significant bleeding or an acquired coagulopathy. So for example, overdosing on a medication like warfarin. And then finally, we talked about the type and screen and the cross match because we want to always want to make sure that if we need to transfuse, we're giving cross-matched blood. This also is going to be the test that may take the longest depending on your institution. Um, and so assuming no antibodies to screen against, a cross-match can be had relatively quickly in most large academic centers. All right, Nick. So, you know, we're thinking like emergency medicine doctors. We've gotten those labs that we want. Let's go back now and, you know, you want to go and you want to see the patient and talk to them, right? So what are some things that you want to elicit on history and exam? Yeah, I think that, you know, the questions, if you can keep them simple, that's the really good way to do it. And I think that bleeding boils down to just how much, how long, and how frequently. And that's going to give you a good sense of where this patient is at and kind of also a good idea of what differential diagnosis might be. How much bleeding should give you a sense for the amount of acute blood loss and whether this is something that's life-threatening. Obviously, if they told you, you know, oh, this has been like, you know, a pad a day for two weeks, that's a very different type of bleeding than these patients that always tell me, like, I'm wearing like my heaviest flow tampon and two pads and still soaking through my underwear and getting blood onto the sheets. Like, that's something that is really, really acute bleeding. Um, and so you should pay attention to that. 
how long bleeding has been going on is also really important to keep in mind. This also kind of gets into sort of the timing of the bleeding is another marker of blood loss, how long these episodes have lasted if the blood loss is episodic. Whether the bleeding is regular or irregular can open up into sort of your differential about ovulatory or anovulatory bleeding versus something that's more structural like fibroids or polyps. And then finally, how frequently the bleeding is, you should get a sense of whether this is a one-off acute event versus a recurrent issue that maybe is exacerbated um, with this particular visit. Frequent heavy bleeding events might be suggestive of an underlying bleeding disorder, as Faye mentioned in younger patients, versus for older patients, you might see something that's like a structural cause of heavy bleeding with intermenstrual spotting within large or heavy periods at the time of menses in older patients. Examination can also help toward getting a sense of immediate causes. Again, it's not unusual for us to see lacerations and things that can cause heavy bleeding, but I've also seen in our emergency department things like prolapsing fibroids or polyps that really are just the source and you actually can take care of those fairly quickly. An exam can also give you a sense too of whether you suspect life-threatening hemorrhage in that moment and give you a sense of what direction you want to start with. Imaging or other testing is also worth a mention here. Pelvic ultrasounds are something that as gynecologists we're very used to doing and it may or may not be appropriate depending on the degree of bleeding that's happening for your patient. Ultimately that probably will be part of your workup but maybe not in the immediate acute setting. You should also consider actually endometrial biopsy in those under the age of 45 who have risk factors. Um, again, that sort of when we talked about endometrial cancer in previous episodes, unopposed estrogen, um, obesity, things like that, that might put them at risk of having an underlying malignancy. So Faye, I think now at this point we've seen our patient, we've gotten sort of a sense of maybe like how bad the bleeding is, what might be causing it, but we were called down to the emergency department to stop the bleeding. So how are we going to do that? So just like everything in OBGYN, it's either medical or it's surgical. So we'll start first with the medical therapies because it's usually the most ideal in the moment, um, though sometimes you know you do have to take your patient to the OR. So the meds to remember, first of all, is to think conjugated equine estrogen or IV estrogen. And yes, it does come from horses. <laughs> the dose here is 25 milligrams IV every four to six hours for 24 hours. However, you should avoid this in patients with a history of breast cancer or history or risk of thromboembolic disease. It's excellent in terms of its efficacy. There are small randomized controlled trials that demonstrate stoppage of bleeding in 72% of women with exposure to IV estrogen over eight hours versus only 38% with placebo. However, this does require observation or inpatient administration as it's IV only and will ultimately need to transition your patient to a by-mouth medication. And you really shouldn't put them on unopposed estrogen forever. That can also cause issues as we know. The second medication to consider is um, something that we as OBGYNs use all the time, which are just combined oral contraceptives. The suggested dose are the 35 microgram monophasic combined pill, meaning 35 micrograms of estrogen. You want that higher dose of estrogen to try and decrease that bleeding. And the dose is usually three times a day for seven days. So you would actually have to tell your patients, you have to prescribe them three packs of birth control at a time, and you tell them to take three of them for a whole week. There are some alternative regimens, um, and likely one exists that is the favorite for your hospital. And sometimes what you'll do is like a taper. So you'll say a week, three times a day, and then for two weeks, you do two times a day, and then for a week, just once a day. 
Remember, again, to avoid in patients who are smokers who are over the age of 35, who have a history or current venous thromboembolism, migraine with aura, or other major risk factors for VTE, like diabetes with vascular complications, recent surgery with immobility, etc. Basically, you shouldn't give it to people who you normally would not prescribe birth control pills for. The reason we like this is because, first of all, it's easy to administer. It's really easy to take a pill, and patients are generally familiar with birth control pills overall. It's also quite high in efficacy, about 88 percent are going to stop bleeding within three days. Nick, talk to me about some other methods. What other medications can we use in patients, especially if people can't use estrogen? Yeah, so progesterones on their own actually can be helpful with the management of bleeding. And the one that is mentioned in the ACOG committee opinion is medroxyprogesterone acetate, or probably better known as Provera. The suggested dose is 20 milligrams PO, and just like with combined hormonal contraceptives, taken three times a day for a week. Um, but like those combined hormonal contraceptives, many alternative regimens exist for that, and likely there is some sort of favorite in the lore at your hospital. Again, there are taper regimens, there are alternative dosing regimens, and so kind of ask around and see what people find as like the best in terms of their practice. With Provera, they're a similar but lower risk overall um, in patients who have a past or current history of venous thromboembolism. Also, again, recommended to avoid in folks with breast cancer or those who have active liver disease. Provera also, though, has high efficacy. It's 76% who stop bleeding within three days. Again, that's compared to the 88% for combined hormonal contraceptives. And I think the other thing that is sort of in Provera's favor is that it may have an improved side effect profile over combined hormonal contraceptives. Patients often will complain about a significant amount of nausea with the high doses of estrogen on the combined pills, and you can oftentimes avoid that with Provera. Tranexamic acid is the last medication that we'll talk about. We've talked about TXA on the podcast before for OB hemorrhage. For gynecologic hemorrhage, you actually use this as a PO form. It's recommended 1,300 milligrams PO three times a day for five days. Um, you can use IV formulation for acute bleeding as well, and the recommended dosing for that is 600 milligrams every eight hours for 24 hours. TXA, as we've mentioned before, has kind of an uncertain thromboembolic risk, but again, because it's something that inhibits the breakdown of clots, um, it may increase risk of VTE, so you should use it again with caution in those who have significant risk factors. TXA has mostly been studied as a medication in those with chronic abnormal uterine bleeding and reduces bleeding amounts in those patients by on the order of somewhere between 30 and 55%. The last thing that I'll mention from a medication perspective, though, that we won't get into really deeply today is that if you suspect a bleeding disorder, you should get hematology involved. Again, your resuscitation or treatment in those instances are going to be influenced by your particular factor deficiency. So if you have a patient who's super therapeutic on warfarin or someone who you suspect may be a patient with Willebrand's disease, even though some of these medications may help to temporize that bleeding, you're really not getting at the root of the problem. Okay, so Faye, it's been a little while since I've done gynecologic surgery, um, but I don't really remember a lot of surgical management for acute GYN hemorrhage. Yeah, these are pretty unusual, and so we won't spend too much time here. I will say that, you know, the few times that we've done it um, for 
very heavy bleeding, I've mostly just seen like a DNC or a hysteroscopy. And this may be helpful for a known cause. So for example, if you know someone has a polyp or a submucosal fibroid and it's causing acute hemorrhage. Um, but there are, again, often just temporizing measures. Unless the cause is truly identified, it's not necessarily going to impact bleeding beyond the current cycle. So maybe you want to use it to just stop that acute bleeding right now, but you still have to address the problem later on down the line. Another thing that you could consider, um, just like in someone who is bleeding um, acutely after a vaginal delivery, you can use a balloon tamponade. Um, and that is usually not a Bakri balloon because those are a little bit too big for those small non-pregnant uteruses. But usually you can use a 26 French Foley catheter and fill it up with 30 cc's of saline in the balloon to cause that tamponade. And then finally, in the cases of acute hemorrhage where, you know, the patient is hemorrhaging to the point where you think that they may need acute intervention because otherwise they might bleed out, um, you can always call interventional radiology for uterine artery embolization or in very dire circumstances, a hysterectomy. Again, these can be considered as options, though ideally not in that mega acute situation. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So why don't we quickly summarize? Sure. So we started off today talking about the mechanisms or causes of bleeding. So remember palm coin, quick refresher, palm are the structural causes, polyp, adenomyosis, lyomyoma or fibroids and malignancy. Coin with that extra E in there are the non-structural causes, coagulopathy, anovulatory bleeding or ovulatory bleeding, endometrial, iatrogenic, and N for not otherwise specified. Remember that if you're called for acute bleeding, to always remember your ABCs, particularly the Cs in this point. So get your vital signs, get IV access, and resuscitate with crystalloid or even blood if necessary. The laboratories that you want to think about are getting a pregnancy test, a CBC, a COAG panel, type and screen, and a cross match. And then on history and exam, you should... Remember to ask about how much, how long, and how frequently are the patients bleeding. And then do an exam to identify um, acute causes, things like trauma, a fibroid, or a polyp. And then also consider imaging if the patient is stable, something like a pelvic ultrasound or even endometrial biopsy in those under the age of 45 with risk factors, for example, unopposed estrogen like in PCOS. We talked about four primary medications to help stop the bleeding. The first IV estrogen or conjugated equine estrogen that comes at 25 milligrams IV every four to six hours for 24 hours. It works really, really well, but you should avoid it in patients with breast cancer and definitely in those with a history or risk of thromboembolic disease. There's no PO form of this, so this is just temporizing and ultimately you need to transition to a different PO medication. Combined hormonal contraceptives are the next option. Usually we use a 35 microgram monophasic pill three times daily for a week. Again, avoiding patients who are smokers over the age of 35, those with a history of or risk for current venous thromboembolism, migraines with aura, other reasons to avoid combined hormonal contraception. We also talked about treatment with Provera or medroxyprogesterone acetate with a dosage of 20 milligrams by mouth three times a day for seven days. Similarly, you should avoid them in patients who have a history of venous thromboembolism, breast cancer, or active liver disease. Again, they're very efficacious, 76% will stop bleeding within three days. The other um, thing to consider is tranexamic acid dosed at 1,300 milligrams by mouth three times a day for five days, or you can use an IV formulation, 600 milligrams every eight hours. Again, there's uncertain thromboembolic risk, but potentially it could increase that risk, so use in caution with people with significant risk factors. This can also reduce bleeding in those with chronic abnormal uterine bleeding at 30 to 55%. 
With respect to surgical management, it's fairly unusual for acute GYN hemorrhage, but can be done. DNC hysteroscopies really are only helpful for known causes. If they're done on an unknown cause, it's not necessarily going to impact bleeding beyond the current cycle. Balloon tamponade can be performed, again, on the small non-pregnant uterus. You should use something like a 26 French Foley catheter with 30 cc's in the balloon. And then finally, in the heroic situation, using interventional radiology for a UAE or hysterectomy can be considered, though obviously these aren't ideal, as generally speaking, you prefer to have planning for these procedures. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, I'm Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you want to donate to the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you have a question for us, a correction for this show or any other show, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 